He is risen? Absolutely. And if you're headed out to Mosaic Kids, if you're a uh, K through third, yes, K through third. Thank you, Miss Antonia. You can find the folks in the yellow shirts in the back if you're going out with Mosaic Kids. The rest of you can open up your Bible to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Uh, and if you don't have your Bible, it's no big deal. The words will be on the screen behind me. Uh, and so I, I, we've been in a series on Romans and as I was praying through what the Lord would have for us today, I kept coming back to Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, because I think there's something really crucial for us here. There's something crucial for us to see. But let me begin by asking you this question. What does God think about you? Maybe you've asked yourself that question. What does God think about you? When God sees you or looks at you or remembers you, so to speak, what does God see? What does he think about you? I often find uh, find when I ask folks that question that there is sometimes confusion, maybe even uncertainty around the question, what does God think of me? What does God think of you? And I think this confusion and uncertainty is normal. I think it's a part of the broken condition, our, our natural way of living in this world, that we are uncertain as to what God thinks of us. And I think that for some of you today, you maybe find yourself asking, I don't really know what God thinks about me. When asked that question, I don't really know how to respond. I, I don't know how I could be certain about how God sees me. And yet in Romans eight thirty one through 39, we get a picture And what I want you to see is that you can leave here today with certainty in how you respond to that question. That when you hear the question, what does God think about me? You can actually know what God thinks about you. And we're going to find out how. I'm going to read Romans 8, 31 through 39. And afterwards, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. That's an invitation for you to respond and to say, thanks be to God. The reason we do this is because God hasn't left his people in silence. He's spoken. We want to give thanks for that. Let me read Romans 8, 31 through 39. You can follow along in your Bible, and the words will be on the screen behind me. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let me tell you something. You can have freedom from confusion around what God thinks about you. 
You can have certainty when you think through the question, what does God think about me? Look at how Paul begins here. He asks a question that maybe seems odd. He poses a hypothetical, and you might be wondering, why does he do this? He says, if God is for us, well, why wouldn't God be for me? Why wouldn't God be for you, right? I mean, when you hear this question, you might think, what do you mean, if God is for me? Isn't God love, right? If God is love, how could he not be for me? How could he not be for my good? Paul poses this hypothetical. If God is for us, then who can be against us? And you might be found scratching your head going, well, why wouldn't God be for me? Isn't God love? And yet we discover earlier in the letter that the problem isn't with God. The problem is with us. This question here is not raised because there's a problem with God. Either his love is too small or his grace is too small. No, that's not the issue at play. The issue at play is not God's love. The issue at play is our faith. It's our willingness to receive God's love. If God is for us, God is for us. And yet the problem is we're born into this world and we are not for God. We are born broken from the start. The problem as it starts here, the reason Paul even has to say it hypothetically is not because there's a problem with God, but there's a problem with us. By nature, we aren't for God. By nature, we are broken. By nature, there is a rupture, a fissure in the human heart where there is supposed to be love for God, there is love for sin. Where there is supposed to be wholeness and fellowship with God, there is enmity with God. So Paul begins by saying, if God is for us, but how does he end this passage? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So it begins with this hypothetical, if God is for us, and it ends with Paul saying, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Nothing. So what changes? What changes? How can Paul begin by saying, if God is for us, and how can he end by saying, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ? Does God change? Does the way that God feel about you change? No, there must be some change that happens within us. And this is exactly what Paul says in between this hypothetical and this hope, is he says exactly what has happened. How are we changed in order that we might live in friendship with God? Well, Paul tells us, he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul tells you the way that God has affected this change is that he has given up his son, Jesus. This is what we remembered on Good Friday, the crucifixion of Christ, that God the Father sends the Son of God into the world. Why? So that he might repair what we could never fix on our own so that he might reconcile and cross a gap that we could never bridge on our own. God the Father gives up graciously the Son of God. Why? Because he wants us to be friends with God. Because he wants us to know fellowship with God. Because he wants us to know true salvation. That's what God wants for us. Because God is for us, he has graciously sent his son Jesus to repair the breach to repair our rebellion, to restore what we broke when we rejected God in the garden. You see, God freely gives what we desperately need and can't find anywhere else. He gives righteousness. It says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
You know what this word means, justifies? It means to receive the affirmation of God. It means to be holy. It means to be righteous. It means to be brought into alignment with God's way and God's will because we are born out of alignment. God brings us into alignment through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who takes upon himself in the cross everything we deserve and gives us everything we don't deserve. This is the great exchange of God giving up his son is that God takes your sin, your brokenness, your unrighteousness and he places it on the son and he gives the righteousness, the holiness, the belovedness of the son and he places it on you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. We need righteousness to have fellowship with God, and we're born into this world without it. And yet God graciously provides in Jesus what we can't find anywhere else, and yet we desperately need the righteousness of God. And where does he provide this? Only in Christ Jesus. Only in Christ Jesus. And when we are declared righteous in Jesus, do you know what happens? We are moved from being enemies with God to becoming friends of God. We are moved from sojourners and strangers to sons and daughters. We are moved from rebels and rejects to recipients of God's love and grace. This is what God does for us in salvation. This is the good news of Easter. It's the good news of the gospel. It's not merely that Jesus died and rose again, but it's that he died, he rose again, and now he represents us on behalf of God, and he is a very good representative to have. Why? Because he's God's beloved son. He's God's beloved son. So when I ask, where do you stand with God? What does God think about when he thinks about you? Let me ask you, would you call him friend? Maybe more importantly, would would he call you friend? You might feel like, I don't really know how to live free from this confusion. How can I know what God thinks about me? Well, the way that we know what God thinks about us is that we make our home with God in Jesus. By faith, we trust in Jesus. And as we trust in Jesus, we are brought in to Jesus. And the way that we can know what God thinks about us is that when we are in Jesus, what can be said of Christ can be said of you. That's really good news. That what can be said of Christ can be said about you. It's not because you're so great. It's not because you fixed all the problems. It's not because you finally feel like you are at the top of the pile in the judgment of the world. It's not for any of those reasons. The reason that we can know what God thinks about us is because we find ourselves in Jesus. We can know what God thinks about us because we know clearly what God thinks about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. We know that this is the beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. And that can be said about you when you enter into Jesus by faith. But how? Because if our sin separates us, how has God done this great work? Well, Paul goes on to say this, right? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who was at the right hand of God interceding for us. This is the Easter story. Not merely that Christ died, not merely that Christ rose again, though those two things are gloriously true, but that Christ died, Christ rose again, and now Christ is at the right hand of God. And that when we place our faith in Christ, 
Do you know what Jesus says to the Father about you? They're with me. Do you know what Jesus says about the Christian to God the Father? When we place our faith in him, he says, they're with me. They, they have access here. Why? Because we are with Jesus. Why are we allowed into the presence of God if we had rebelled and rejected and were born unrighteous? How are we let in to God's presence? How do we become friends with a God that we are born rejecting? We are brought into Jesus and Jesus brings us before the Father and says, they belong to you because they are with me. You see, this condemnation that we're free from, it's the punishment we deserve for the wrong that we have done. And you may feel like, listen, I don't have this kind of wrong in my past. I don't have anything that I need to be saved from. And yet all of us do because we're born in Adam. We're born in fellowship, not with Christ, but with Adam. He was our representative in the garden. And you may feel like, well, listen, pastor, I've never rebelled or rejected God. You have in the garden and in your life, as we all have, born rebels, born rejects, and yet the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus is the means by which we are free from this condemnation. And this is incredible news because many of you believe that you're defined by the worst that you've done. If you're honest with yourself, you believe that you're defined by the worst thing that you've done. Some of you believe that you're defined by the worst thing that's been done to you. And shame is the pit on either side of salvation. And Jesus invites us in through his death and resurrection. And he tells us this, you are not defined by the worst thing you've ever done, nor are you defined by the worst that's ever been done to you. There is no scarlet letter of shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet so many of us just learn to live resigned, defeated to living under the banner of shame and defeat forever. And we know that we do this because we look to the judgment of the world to tell us that we matter. And it always fails to deliver. Why are we so hungry for the affirmation of the people around us? Because we were born to receive the affirmation of God and yet we're born without it. And so we look around the world and we wonder, why won't they love me? Why won't they tell me I matter? We project to the world an appearance that we think will garner this kind of attention that we crave, that we desire. And yet the whole while, Jesus stands saying what he says in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That promise is not a promise that your life isn't going to be busy. It's a promise that you're not going to have to spend your whole life telling the world that you matter because God has already said it in the cross. That's good news, that you don't have to scrape and crawl through this world asserting your worth and value, exhausting yourself trying to hide shame or cover shame. Jesus is inviting you today to say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Christ Jesus, God doesn't judge you for what you have done or what's been done to you. He judges you in light of what Christ has done. In Christ Jesus, you are free from constantly looking to the judgment of the world to make up your mind about your worth because you live free from the judgment of God. In Christ Jesus, you are free from your internal voice that tells you that you are either the greatest person who's ever lived or the worst person who's ever lived. Why? Because God has made it so in Jesus. And he has done this by taking all the judgment against sin, all the sting of shame, all the punishment of death from us and placing it on his son, Jesus Christ. And we receive all of these benefits by grace through faith in Jesus. 
So if you've walked in today uncertain, wondering to yourself, what does God think about me? How could I possibly know what God thinks of me? You can know that today with certainty, not because you're going to think all the questions and have them all solved, not because you're going to right all the wrongs that you've done, but because you're going to come to Jesus by grace through faith, either for the first time or for the hundredth time, and you're going to say, it is only in Christ that I can know what God thinks about me. And once I make my home with him there, I never have to have any uncertainty as to the answer to that question, why? Because God has spoken over the Son this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when we make our home with God in Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God. This is what Paul ends. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, height, depth, anything in all of creation, this list isn't meant to be exhaustive. What Paul is doing is trying to demonstrate to you there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. Dream it up. Think it up. What's the greatest failure you think stands behind you or the greatest failure you fear stands in front of you? If you find yourself at the depths of death, if you find yourself in the greatest pit of despair, do you know what you will find there if you are in Christ? The love of God. You can't go anywhere in all of creation. You can't go to the bottom of the sea or the heights of the mountain and hide yourself from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And every hand you hold, every song you cry to, every movie you watch, every fluttering of your heart speaks to you that you were made for a love that you will find nowhere else but in Christ alone. Why has God done this? Why has God done this work? Why didn't he just leave us? Why didn't he just abandon us? Why? Well, the answer is how Paul ends. Love. Love. God's love for his people. Unbreakable, unfiltered, unmitigated, unrelenting, unchanging, unconditional love. Resurrecting, restoring, renewing, reviving, repairing, recreating love. And for whom? For the broken, the beaten down, the beyond all hope, the blessed sinners who can't seem to do anything right. People like me. People like you. The love of God for the broken. The love of God for the shame. The love of God for the beaten down. This is why God has done this work, because of love. And let me invite you today. Come to Jesus and live free in the love of God. Free from the question of what God thinks about you. Free from the alienation of shame and the power of sin. Free from a life lived in constant defeat. And how? Through trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not just good news that Christ rose. That's a historical reality, and it is a glorious truth. But it is a glorious truth that we live into when we place our full surrender and faith in Christ as our representative. Let me tell you something. You don't want to represent you before God. You will be a terrible representative of yourself. Because you will either give yourself more credit than is due, or you will damn yourself forever. And yet Christ is our gracious representative. The word that Christ speaks about his people is that they belong to God because they are in him.
This is what God is inviting you into. I don't know if you're wondering how you got here today. Maybe a family member or a friend drug you in here or promised you brunch. The brunch isn't going to be that good. So if they promised you brunch, I want to be straight with you. It's not going to deliver on its promises, okay? I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're wondering, how did I end up here today in some Adventist high school gym in Richardson? God has brought you here. God has brought you here. And he's brought you here because he's inviting you to have no more confusion, no more uncertainty. God is not undecided on you. He's not waiting to make up his mind. He's inviting you into Jesus. And his mind is already settled. You're beloved for good forever in Christ. Nothing can ever change that. Nothing you've ever done, nothing you'll ever do. I don't know if there's better news than that. We have no gimmicks here. We have no fireworks. We have no pizzazz. We're not giving away a car. We have the gospel. We're convinced it's that good. And I'm convinced that living life with Jesus is better than any other way to live. And if you keep holding that door, thinking that Christ couldn't possibly be inviting you through it, he is right now, inviting you, saying, come to me. Come to me and live in uncertainty and confusion no longer by embracing the liberating power of Christ Jesus' resurrection, by surrendering your life to making your home with God in Christ, knowing that when you do so, your pronouncement will be welcome home, beloved child of God. I am well pleased with you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. I pray for these people. I pray for my heart. God, through the preaching of your word, save or sanctify. I know there are hearts among us today that have felt pulled over the course of this sermon, that feel true uncertainty and confusion around the question, what does God think about me? And I pray that today they would respond in faith and they would know confidence for good forever. Not because of their faithfulness, but because of Christ's faithfulness. We thank you, God, for your grace. I thank you, God, that you still move in power today. And we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that Christ has died, Christ rose again, and Christ is at the right hand of the Father. And the names on his lips are the names of your children. We come before you in him and by the power of the Spirit this morning. In your name, amen.